last week I was hanging out with my kiddos, with my, my tribe, and I made up a game. I, I made up this game called Blind Hide and Go Seek. And uh, we are playing hide and go seek. We've been doing that a ton around our house, and uh, we've kind of exhausted all of the different hiding spots, and uh, you know, our house is only so big, and, and it also kind of always leads to brothers chasing each other, and then a black eye or a beat down, you know, and, and so I thought, I'm going to give it a little bit of a twist that will, you know, mix it up a bit, and it will also prevent injuries. I'm going to blindfold the kids, <laughs> and uh, as, I, as I shared my idea with the kids, as I was like spitting it out, I realized that was so stupid. <laughs> you really think blindfolding them is going to prevent injuries, right? And uh, you know, what's crazy is we went on to play the game. And it did. And I remember thinking, wow, my mind went from this is a good idea, this is a bad idea. Maybe that was actually a good idea. And I started thinking about why was it actually a good idea. And and as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about the fact that, you know what, the reason it actually worked was because they were blind and they knew it. And because they were blind and they knew it, it ended up being the safest game of hide-and-go-seek that we've ever played. Probably the first game that didn't end in a fight or uh, you know, somebody slipping and busting their head on the corner of a, of a table. Why? Because they were blind and, and, and they knew it. And so they were very cautious. They were, you know, walking around with their hands out and the boys had one hand out and one hand covering their boy parts because they didn't trust their brother to not come up and punch them because that would have happened too. But they were, they were very, very cautious. They were blind and they knew it. They were, they were thoughtful about where they were, were going and, and, and they knew it, Right? They, they knew they were, were blind, but, but what's so much worse is, is being blind and you don't know it. Being blind and you're not cautious, you're not thoughtful about where you're going, and, and next thing you know, you're walking way, way, way off course to your death because you've been oblivious to the reality that you are blind and you can't see where you're going. And so today's sermon, I'm calling Blind. I'm calling this sermon blind. And we're not talking about physical blindness. We're talking about spiritual blindness, which is a very, very, very dangerous reality because you can be blind and not even know that you're blind. So Luke chapter 18, verse 31 is where we're going to pick up today. And so if you have a Bible, get on over there, Luke 18 31 or the app on your phone you can scroll there if you need a bible we have some around the room and if you don't have one at home grab one of those at some point and uh, bring that home we'd love for you to have that uh, we'll also have it on the screen here for you luke 18 31 we're spearing, spending a year and a half in the book of luke we'll be finishing up at easter and so we are actually really really getting close and and so at this point in the book where we're at we're about one month out from the cross only only one month away and and jesus and his disciples are working their way towards jerusalem where it's all gonna go down now usually what we'll do in here is we'll, we'll we'll take small passages and go slow looking at each word very carefully today what we're gonna do is we're gonna go a bit broader and we're gonna look at this theme that we can't miss in these couple of uh, chapters here and and the theme in in 18 and 19 of Luke that that I believe Luke is pointing out in the ministry of Jesus is spiritual blindness so let's read Luke 18 we'll start in uh, 31 and we'll go through uh, 33 it says and taking the 12 he said to them see we are going up to Jerusalem 
that's up because Jerusalem is a city up on a hill. And everything that is written about the Son of Man, that's his favorite name for himself, the Son of Man. Everything that's written about me by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. All right. So Jesus and his 12 disciples are uh, preparing to get into Jerusalem. They've been slowly working their way there uh, for quite a while now because that's why he came, ultimately, yes, to teach, yes, to do miracles, but all of that culminating in his death on the cross. It's all going to go down in Jerusalem. It's this spiritual capital city. It's this uh, political uh, capital city because it's a, it's a, 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 a nation centered on the Lord Israel. And at this time in history, in this time in their calendar, Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people are working their way towards Jerusalem as well, along with the disciples and, and Jesus from all kinds of places, far, far away places. They're heading to the temple so that they might celebrate the, the Passover, which is celebrating God's deliverance of his people from captivity, slavery in, in Egypt, particularly that last way that, that God uh, brought them out, uh, the Passover. And so as they're preparing to go up to Jerusalem, again, up to, because it's a city on a hill, Jesus tells them, listen, guys, I need you to hear something. They are going to spit on me, mock me, beat me. They're going to kill me. And if you've been with us on this journey through the book of Luke, you've seen that this is now the the third time that Jesus has told them this. They're going to beat me. They're going to mock me. They're going to kill me. Okay, marriage pro tip. All right, you ready for this? Some of you might need this or or put this into use later. On, On Friday... Uh, I, I went home for lunch just to grab a quick bite to eat, and I was going to rush out the door to, to finish up my sermon and prepare, uh, finish preparing for today. And uh, on my way out the door, my wife uh, said, hey, uh, I'm, I'm heading to Luca's, that's our middle son, our, our, our little guy, I'm heading to Luca's parent-teacher conference uh, if you want to come. And uh, I said, oh, I got a ton of work to do. I'm not quite there yet on writing the sermon, and I really got to get this together. So um, when I come back home, We'll catch up on that. Now, she said, it'll only be 15 minutes. Um, and I said, oh, I, I really, really can't. And so she hops in the car and goes off to the conference. And I get all ready to go and hop in. I'm about to head back out. And as I was getting in the car, after quickly stuffing my face, I, I realized, Josh, you're an idiot. It'll only take 15 minutes was her way of saying, you need to go. You have no excuse. <laughs> and Oh, man, so I turned the car the opposite direction and raced over to school just thinking, oh, man, if I can just get in there in time. And I got there, and she was sitting just outside the office because it was a little bit backed up, praise the Lord. And I walked into the conference with her, and, and the teacher goes, her name's Miss Glenn, she goes, oh, mom and dad. And I said, I wouldn't miss it for the world. <laughs> and just got in there and looked great. So marriage pro tip, listen. To your spouse. And sometimes they say things that they're not actually saying with their lips. Now, is Jesus here doing that? Is, is Jesus playing wifey? It'll only take 15 minutes. Is, is he saying, are you wearing that? Which is her way of saying, don't you dare walk out of the house with that on. Right? And so, 
Is that what he's doing? No. He's, I mean, incredibly clear. How do you miss this? I will be delivered over to the Gentiles. I will be mocked, shamefully treated. I will be spit upon. I will be flogged. They will kill me. I mean, I hear that. I, I, how, do you, how do you miss that? Verse 34, but they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. They miss it. They're, they're spiritually blind. It's hidden from their eyes. Now, here's where we begin to, to, to see this theme. That the next story that Luke will record for us in the book of Luke is now Jesus and the blind man. So read on with me. The, uh, verses 35 through uh, the end of the chapter. It says, And as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting on the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Kind of like what we saw last week with the kids. Hey, don't bother Jesus. He's important. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. Again, Jesus paying attention to those who were considered lesser. Kids were not valuable until they were able to carry their own weight. And the same with this blind man here. But he says, no, I want to talk to those kids. I want to talk to this man. Let's continue on. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Now, Working their way towards Jerusalem, they get to Jericho, which is en route to Jerusalem, not too far out from Jerusalem. And, and there's this blind man, right? And, and he hears this crowd whizzing by, and he thinks, what's all this commotion about, right? What's, what's happening? And so he says, hey guys, what, what is it? And they say, it's Jesus of, of Nazareth. And so you see twice now, the blind man calls out. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, let's imagine for a moment, let's just try to wrap our minds around this man's plight in, in, in life, where, where he's at, what he's going through. He's blind. He has no sight. None. Imagine this. If you were to close your eyes, I won't make you do it, but if you were to close your eyes just for 30 seconds in a room full of all these people who feel incredibly awkward and, and then painful and then you're concerned and, and he was blind right no sight and in those days it was uh, considered or assumed that you were blind due to your sin here's how I know this in John chapter 9 there's another blind man and in that story Jesus's disciples say hey uh, rabbi this guy who's blind who, who sinned that he would be blind him or his parents and Jesus says no one you dummies which is straight out of the Josh standard version of the Bible it says no one you dummies it was not sin it was so that I might do something powerful and display my might in him. And Jesus then restores his sight. And so for this guy in Jericho, it was, it was obviously very similar. People were imagining he's blind because of some kind of particular sin. And so he would have been ostracized. And we see here that he's sitting on the, the roadside, which tells us that he's a, a beggar. He likely had no one, perhaps because they saw him as a a sinner, and that was a particular class of people, a sinner class, because he, he's there because of his sin, so they uh, assumed 
his appearance would have likely been a mess. He would have been unkept. He probably smelled terrible, looked terrible. He would have been homeless and just feeling increasingly separated from the people. And then you have other people saying, no, no, Jesus, don't bother him. Just people just imagine it's best to stay away from him. We don't catch his uh, sin, so to speak. Now, it's possibly even worse than the blind man in John chapter 9. Because in John chapter 9, it says that that blind man was blind from birth. And so he had no sight to compare it to, right? You ever thought about that? If you're blind from birth, that's all you've ever known. But this guy doesn't say that he's blind from birth. Maybe he's not blind from birth. Maybe he got blind later on. Can you even begin to imagine that? But now he's blind, and that's his life. He's just completely ostracized, can't see, head games going on. This is his life. Until this amazing life-changing day when, when Jesus comes into his life and, and everything changes. And what does Jesus ultimately do? He, he heals them. He heals this man. But first, the blind man says something really profound. Notice that he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 38, and he says it again. Verse 39, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. There's, there's two parts to this statement I think we need to make note of. First of all is son of David. It's telling us that he sees Jesus as that long-awaited, kingly, prophesied about Messiah who's going to come and save God's people from their sin. The second thing there, he says, he says, have mercy on me, showing that he understands that he's completely dependent upon Jesus extending mercy to him. Mercy is when someone uh, doesn't give you what you deserve or the punishment that is deserved by you and so he understands I'm sinful I don't deserve the healing that Jesus can can bring me but I do believe that this great God this great king has mercy that he loves to extend and grace that he loves to extend and after all of that what does Jesus do Jesus acknowledges his faith he points out his faith and he says recover your sight your faith has made you well and so faith in this Context here is when you see Jesus' power, you see his authority, you see his mercy and his grace, and you respond to it by putting your complete dependence and trust in that. So, what's the remedy then to spiritual blindness? It's seeing your sin and responding by trusting in Jesus, by placing faith in Jesus, by being dependent on Jesus. That's how we respond to, to spiritual blindness. Now, throughout the book of Luke, you'll see as we you study along, you'll see that physical miracles oftentimes will parallel spiritual truth. Now, here, notice before the, the physical miracle of sight, we've got a spiritual miracle of sight. This man displays before he gets his physical sight that he now has Spiritual sight. That's what we call biblical irony. He displays spiritual sight before physical sight. He sees his sin. He then sees Jesus as the Savior of the world. And he responds to that. The blind man sees while everybody else around him, he says, no, don't even bother Jesus. They don't see Jesus. He sees because of of faith. Now, if you're a note taker, this is a great place to start taking notes throughout the rest of our time together. First one is this, if spiritual sight. If you want to 
to write this out a bit. If spiritual sight is uh, it's seeing your sin and placing faith in Jesus as, as Savior. That's spiritual sight. Seeing your sin, placing faith in Jesus as Savior. Contrast that now to, to spiritual blindness, which is failing to see your sin and, and failure to see Jesus as your Savior over that sin problem. Now, for the remainder of our time, I want to show us just a, a few spiritual blinders, so to speak. And you'll see with each of these uh, realities uh, that, that block our spiritual vision. And, and if we don't see sin as the ultimate problem, these things are blinders for us. Then uh, what we're going to do is we're then going to turn and, and look to each of these things to, to fix our problems. So these are our blinders, but they can also be our functional saviors, these things that we're going to look at. Does that make sense? If not, uh, let's just keep going, and, and I think eventually you'll see. Four spiritual blinders from the Scripture. First one is this, comfort. The first spiritual blinder I think uh, people struggle with, maybe some of us, likely many of us, is, is comfort. Uh, for, for many, uh, that comfort will then keep us spiritually blind. Go back to, to 31 again through 34. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, they're going to kill me. Uh, he says, everything that is written about me in the Old Testament prophets or by the Old Testament prophets will be accomplished. Everything. But they couldn't acknowledge the, the everything. They only wanted to acknowledge the things that were prophesied about Jesus that were very comfortable for them. They liked when the Old Testament prophets would talk about Jesus as, as king. They loved that. But they seemed to ignore when the Old Testament prophets talked about Jesus as a suffering servant. Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22. Why did they, they, they fail to see what Jesus was speaking to? When he wasn't being wife-like, he seemed to be just so, so clear. It's because they were blinded by comfort. They were, they were blinded by their, their, their comfort. Think about it. They are his disciples. And by very nature of being a disciple means you're trying to become like your rabbi. And if he suffers, that means that he would expect them too to suffer a little bit. But Jesus wouldn't expect us to suffer, would he, guys? He wouldn't want us to have pain on this earth, right? They are so blinded at the possibility of discomfort that here and then in the chapters ahead, despite all the they're going to kill me, all the they're going to murder me talk, they start asking Jesus about, hey, tell us about our thrones in heaven. Just talk about that a little bit. That'd be nice. Tell us where we're going to sit. Tell us what that's going to look like. They're blinded by their, their comfort or their pursuit of comfort. And therefore, it can become their, their functional savior. That, that's my Savior. That's what I want. That's what I put my faith in. That's what I depend upon it is comfort. Anybody? Do we drift back into that from time to time? You pursue comfort over Jesus? You want to know how real someone's faith is? Watch what happens when life gets uncomfortable. When pain comes their way, when illness comes their way, when relational conflict comes their way, when death comes their way, when, when heartache comes their way, you'll start to see, was it comfort, was it ease in life, or was it Christ himself who was their Savior? Compared to the blind man, he was seeing spiritually before he was seeing physically. And so it wasn't comfort that was his 
Savior. He declared these bold truths about Jesus, that he had some sight, some understanding before he could see physically. And the irony is this man who had the most uncomfortable life had spiritual sight, while the people with sight who were comfortable were spiritually blind. And so comfort for us can be a real, a real functional savior. It can be a real blinder for us. Here's the next one. It's power. Power can be a, a blinder. And we're going to skip ahead. As I said earlier, there's a, a great theme over these two chapters. Next week, for the next two weeks, we'll go back to what we skip over. But flip over to 19 and uh, verse 28. 19 verse 28. Uh, we're, we're now where uh, what is known as uh, Palm Sunday. We've skipped ahead now a few weeks. We're now one week before the crucifixion and, and resurrection, Easter weekend. And uh, this is also known as the triumphal entry. Jesus will come in like a king. And so read with me uh, 28, and we'll go down through uh, 44 of chapter 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And they were untying the colt, and its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already, On the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had. What's that word? Seen. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are, what's that say there? Now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So, just before going into Jerusalem, here's what happens. Jesus takes two of his disciples. He says, I want you to go. I want you to grab a colt. That's a, a young donkey that no one has ever sat upon. This is colt jacking, right? <laughs> uh, no, they're just borrowing it. And he says uh, to them, he says, if the owner says, what are you doing? You tell them, God has need of it. Hey, try that in Boston sometime, right? You see a nice little bicycle uh, with skinny tires leaning up against a coffee shop, some hipster bike, you know, and he's inside drinking his chai tea and Instagramming photos of his pastry. And you go and you take his bike and you hop off on it and ride off on it, you know. God told me to do it, right? Crazy, right? You're just borrowing, right? This is what's going on. This is a, a prophecy from Zechariah 9 9. It says this It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey? And so that's how Jesus rides into town. 
He's fulfilling prophecy. The king is coming, Jerusalem. The king is, is coming. And, and so as he's coming, people are starting to connect the dots. Here's what's going on. They're, they're laying their coats down on the ground. The other gospel accounts will include that they, they lay down palm branches, hence the name Palm Sunday. And they're saying the, the king is coming. And we don't even want his donkey to have to touch the, the dusty road. And the palm branches were, were this Jewish national symbol. And so by laying those down on the ground, Jesus walking on top of it, uh, Jesus is saying, I'm king over Israel. Along with all of this, this multitude, lots and lots of his disciples, the crowd has grown huge at this point. Tons of people love Jesus. He's, he's grown in popularity. People are listening and amazed at all that he's saying and the miracles. Word has gotten out and they're, they're singing his praises. Blesses the king who's come in the name of the Lord. And with this theme in view that we've been talking about here, it's interesting that, that, that Luke says, verse 37, they're praising God for the mighty works that they have seen. They've seen him do some amazing things with their physical eyes, but they haven't really been seeing with their, their, their spiritual eyes. They've seen miracles, and they've seen power, and they see a king coming in, and they really like that. They really, really like that, but in just a few short days, this crowd is going to Diminish and it's going to be replaced by another crowd who's shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. In just a week. Now, now what happens over the course of one week that he goes from being heralded as a king to now being heralded as a criminal? How does that happen over the course of one week? People are blinded by power. People like being on the side of the power. They thought that this is when the Messiah was going to come in and flex his political and military power. They were oppressed by Rome and they were occupied by Rome and, and they thought this is the time where he's going to come and flip it upside down and overthrow Rome. That's not what he did. That's not how he flexed his power. He flexed his power up on a cross in a very unconventional way. He flexed his power over Satan, sin, and death by dying on the cross for you and for me and come the end of the week when it looked like the power swung the opposite way to Israel and to Rome, most people just bail on Jesus because they want to be where the the power is. Hey, can we admit that our kids, for those of us who have kids, are sports brats? By living in Boston, you kind of become a, a, a sports brat. You grow up in Titletown, and this past decade has been pretty hot for us, right? It's been pretty uh, amazing, and they, they have hardly had a year. I don't think we've had a year without a title in Boston, without a duck boat parade, right? And, and, and so our kids are just used to being athletic powerhouse city, right? That, that's just the norm for them. My, my kids came in this morning with Patriots tattoos on their face after the big game yesterday. And uh, a couple weeks ago when we had that, that game against uh, Miami, uh, my oldest son just, he loves football which I've never been much of a football guy, and so I'm having to learn how to get into it this year. And uh, we went to a Boston College game, and uh, he, he loves it. And uh, he's over there going, Dad, did you see that? And I didn't see anything. I'm like, yeah. I, don't, I, mean, I mean, we'll go to a baseball game. I'll talk shop all day long. But football, I'm like, field goal, 
Three point? I don't know. I mean, just so he's he's totally into it. And uh, he, we were watching that game a couple weeks ago, and it was ugly against Miami. And my son went down to grab some food, and uh, when he came back, we were starting a defensive uh, run for us or an offensive for Miami. And he comes in, and he goes, "What I miss?" And I go, "Oh, dude, Tom Brady just broke his arm." And he goes what? And he starts rubbing his forehead and freaking out. And and my wife gets in on the action too. She goes, they think it's going to be at least two years, maybe never again. I think it might just be the end of his career. And this was like at least a 10 minute offensive drive for Miami. And my son is just like glossed over, just broken hearted, just stone cold. And then he just eventually just throws up his hands and goes, I'm done. I'm pulling for the Seahawks from now on. And it broke my heart. I was like, you're going to bail that easy on us? And then we finally get the ball back, and Tom Brady goes on the field, and he goes, what? He just lost it on us. Such a sports brat. That's my, that's my kids. Anybody? They don't, they don't remember the years when the Red Sox were under the curse, and it was terrible. They don't, they don't know that, right? But that was the crowd. They loved when the power was on our side, but when the power seemed to go the other way, even though we know the power is in the cross, when it seemed as though the power goes the other way, they just, they bail. Disciples bail, the closest of them, they, they bail because Jesus wasn't coming and, and being that political military power that they, that they want. Now, do we do that? Because I, I, think, I think we do. Here we are in this four-year cycle, and we're getting ready for another presidential election. And there are many Christians out there who are looking for a political Christian leader. And their functional savior becomes political power on the side of the, the church. But listen, if we place faith in, in Jesus, remember he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Don't think that this is normal. The, the past you know, 100 plus years that you've enjoyed in America of it seeming to be the, the, the cultural, political norm that people love the Lord, it, that's not normal. It, it's not normal to have the, the power, so to speak, on your side. In fact, you need to understand that your greatest problem is not political. Your greatest problem is your sin. Your greatest problem is not, oh, we're, we're on the outside now. We're not the, the political power majority. Your, your greatest problem is sin. And only Jesus can address that. Only Jesus can address that. Maybe for you it's not political power. Maybe it's just majority, period, in anything in life. Maybe you go to work and you feel like as a Christian, I'm on the outside. I'm definitely the major, major minority. In your, your family, you go to holiday functions and you feel like, man, I am the major minority here. And that's, that's normal. Power is not something that, that is to be expected in terms of political, military, social power, majority power. Listen, don't make that your savior. Jesus is your savior. That's not your, that's not your greatest problem. Your sin is your, your greatest problem. Be cautious of this, this blinder. And this was a blinder that they had that caused them to, to flip around a little bit. Now, our next blinder is religion. Look at verse 
39, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. So there were lots of fans in this massive crowd cheering on Jesus, but there were also some enemies, and these were the, the Pharisees. These guys did not like Jesus. Why did they not like Jesus? They didn't like Jesus because they were blinded by religion. They thought that their behavior by being really good and working and living a certain way would make them right with God. And as we've said already, it's not that that makes you right with God. It's your faith in God that makes you right with God. It's not your faith in your performance. It's your faith in his performance. The the performance of Jesus that though we sin and though we mess up and it seems like we keep messing up, Jesus lived perfectly. Not me. He, He died the death on the cross. That was the death of a criminal that he didn't deserve in my place. So that it's his life for my life. Theologians call that the great exchange. And he then came back to life. That's power. And and he showed victory over Satan, sin, and death. It was him. And so I'll trust in that, not in my religious performance. We're very cautious around here not to say, hey, we're not religious. This is not a religion. This is so different than religions of the world. All the other religions of the world are in one way or another. Your performance and your behavior is going to earn you God's favor. I obey, therefore, God, you owe me. And he says, no, 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 no. It's not that at all. It's I struggle. You owe me nothing. I come to you with open hands and say, God, I'll, I'll receive I'll trust in what you've done, not in what I've done. But that wasn't the thinking of the Pharisees. They had grown to trust in themselves and grown to trust in their religious effort. And so with their religious eyes, they are scowling at Jesus. And they are scowling at the disciples who are cheering for Jesus and says, Jesus, shut them up. They shouldn't be doing this. Now compare that to to eyes of faith. When we see with eyes of faith and not with these scowling, judgmental, religious eyes, we see people, no matter how bad they've been, that they all have the same deciding factor of whether or not they're going to be right with God, whether or not they're going to be a part of his invisible, eternal kingdom, and that is faith and not performance. That is faith, not religion. See, mercy as the blind man cried out for. And grace and faith are the great equalizers of all people. On this Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, the great equalizer, as we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, of all people is trust in Jesus, and he makes us one. But religiosity makes us scowl at people and look down self-righteous noses at people. Look how I perform. You can't perform like that. You haven't lived up. I'm holy. You've struggled with holy. Christianity says we've all struggled. We've all messed up. Therefore, religion is a blinder. But faith and mercy and grace are great equalizers. They help you to see God rightly and they help you to see other people rightly. Religion causes you to see God wrongly as as though he's indebted to you. And it causes you to see other people wrongly as though you've done something good and they haven't. Or vice versa, if you've struggled to perform well and live well, I can never be that. He says, no, no, no. We're equal. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 28. So, Religion is a a blinder. 
It's a blinder. Now, as Jesus says in 43 and 44, he says after he does this great work, the, the religious center, the, the temple would be removed. It would crumble. And, and that's exactly what happens, historically speaking, in AD 70 under Rome. There's this rebellion of Jewish people that rise up, and Rome squashes it, and the temple is absolutely destroyed and literally taken down stone by stone because some gold had melted around the, the outside and seeped into the cracks. And they said, we got to get to that. And so they pulled each stone out. So they get every single stone. So it's completely flattened out. And that happened. Now, our last blinder is this. Last blinder here is money. Or we could say wealth. Look at me at, at 45 through the end of the chapter. And he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on to his words. So Jesus gets into Jerusalem, and some of the other gospel accounts will help us fill in some of these gaps here, uh, primarily the book of Mark, and it says that he will walk into the temple that Palm Sunday, that, that, that evening. He will observe all that is happening, and he will leave. He will sleep in uh, Bethany. He will come back the next morning, Monday of Holy Week, and as he comes back into the temple, he sees what's going on, and he starts flipping over tables in the temple because people were changing money and, and selling things in, in the temple. Now, here, here's what was going on. For, for Passover, again, people were coming from far-reaching areas of the, the known world, and they would come there to the temple. And, and when you would come to the temple, you would make uh, a sacrifice. Well, if you were poor, you didn't have any kind of animals, so you'd have to buy something there uh, that you could then sacrifice. Or if you traveled really far, maybe you did have money and you did have animals, but you don't want to bring it with you the whole time. Whole, whole trip. And so when you got there, you would buy something uh, there. And, and then also there was a special temple currency. It's kind of like if you go to Chuck E. Cheese and you get a Chuck Buck, you know, it's a special currency. You can't play the arcade game with quarters anymore. You got to swipe the card or drop the coin in there, right? And uh, these guys are, are saying, okay, we're going to do that. And they, they jack the price up. The same thing with animals. They're selling them for sacrifice, for astronomical rates. And these people are just here to honor God. They just want to honor God. They had a difficult time because people were having this monopoly and they were just jacking prices up. And it made Jesus sick. And he flips over tables. Now, we need to, we need to know that Jesus didn't just lose his temper. Well, there's, there's one time he did lose his temper. No. He was thoughtful. He was methodical. Again, remember, it's Monday. He first stepped into the temple the night before. If he was losing his temper at the sight of it, he would have done that on Sunday night and come in and flip over tables. He comes back on Monday and, and, and does this. This is actually the second time that he's done this in the temple. John records him doing this in the very first year of his ministry. And it says at that occasion, he, he takes a whip and starts cracking over the, the tables. Whoa. It wasn't, again, it wasn't Jesus lost his temper, found a whip, and it says he made a whip. Think about the time that you have to make a whip, that you have time to sit here and make it and weave it and you think and it's kind of like if you lose your temper, you struggle with that, you got to breathe. Ten, nine, eight. He had plenty of time to lose it and to shake that, that hot temper. 
but he didn't because it wasn't a temper. It was methodical. It was thoughtful. This is garbage. This should not be happening. My house shall be a house of prayer. Why is he upset? He's upset because people love money over God. People are blind to their sin problem because of their love of money. As we saw last week, he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to get into heaven. This is where we all check our hearts. Is success what drives you? Is money what drives you? Is wealth what drives you? Is house what drives you? Is your career what drives you? What neighborhood you eventually just got to get into what drives you? Is it retirement plan? Is it getting that, that gap of, of financial cushion that, that drives you? Do these things blind you? They distract you from Jesus. I mean, hello, Jesus just walked in to the temple. They don't even see him. Despite all the commotion that went on outside, they don't even see him because they're too busy changing things. They don't see him until he makes a scene. Your greatest problem is not your financial problems. Your greatest problem is your sin. And I'm praying that God would open your eyes to your sin. And ultimately, that's what it's going to take is God opening our eyes. What made the blind man see? Physically, Jesus. But you know what also made the blind man see? Spiritually, it was Jesus. It's it's always Jesus. It may be the veil of comfort. It may be uh, the, the veil of power. It may be the veil of religion. It may be the veil of money, whatever it may be for you, or some of these things in different forms, or maybe something else. I'm just praying, Lord, that you would peel it back from our eyes so that we could see you and see your your truth. Maybe today God's giving some of you sight as you're hearing this. You're seeing, wow, that has been my problem in my eyes, but this is actually the problem. It's the sin problem that Jesus came to address. Maybe you're starting to see your your need for a Savior and how how Jesus has come to to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And in his good, perfect love and and mercy and, and grace, he says that if you will place faith in my work and what I've done for you, you can be made right. And maybe you're beginning to, to see And if that's you, I just want to encourage you, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved, as the scripture says, just like the blind man called upon the name of the Lord and said, give me sight. And that that physical miracle paralleled the the spiritual miracle that was happening in his heart. And maybe for you, that's happening in your heart right now. You're beginning to see the truth of Jesus. Beginning to see your great problem of sin. And Jesus is your real savior Today, he invites you to come into a relationship with him and be made right with God. Not like religion, not because you've earned it, but because he's descended to you and come to earth so that he could march all the way to Jerusalem and to die for you and for me and to resurrect to life and say, if you trust in what I've done, you can be right with me. You can be in the eternal kingdom in heaven and you can also have that life abundantly of freedom on this earth that yes, I'm gonna fail, I'm gonna struggle, but you still love me. If that's you, I want to call you to that today. But the last thing I want to point out is for, for, for Christians in this room, here, here's my question to you. So your eyes have been opened. That's awesome. Praise God for that. It's a miracle. Your eyes have been opened, but now, let me ask you this. Are your eyes wet? Your eyes are open, but are they 
wet. Look at verse 41. And when he, that's Jesus, drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it. I love this account. In fact, I've I've preached through the triumphal entry more than any other passage of Scripture in the history of our church, probably a handful of times. Because I just, I'm blown away by this passage of Scripture. That Jesus, amidst all the commotion, Jesus, Jesus, he comes in and he's sobbing. That, that wept is actually wailed aloud. Ugly cry, loud cry, sobbing over the people who were blind. And we hear all this and maybe we tend to think, Jesus is thinking, you blind fools. No, that's not it at all. The heart of Jesus is he's broken over the blindness of these people. And he's weeping over the blindness of these people. And if we're called to be disciples of Jesus, how can we not weep? How can we not, at least in our hearts, be broken over people around us who are blind to the spiritual realities that set us free? We need God to break our hearts again and again and again and again for people around us who are blind, who are separated from this freedom, from the sight that we have been able to receive by the grace of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Only Christ can can remove the veil. And so we've got to share and we've got to plead with people and we've also got to be pleading with God. God, please, Lift the veil from people's eyes that they might see the truth, the reality of who you are and what you've done, that their greatest problem is sin. Let it break your heart over and over and over and over again. This year as a church, our prayer focus is that everyone would reach one. That we would take a a real effort as, as God's people, as a church collectively, every single one of us to pray that God would give us one person this year that we would reach, that we would see them come to know Jesus. We would see the veil lifted and their eyes open to their sin and their Savior. One thing we said we've been doing as a church is at 10.02 a.m., or if you've got a morning job and that just can't work, 10.02 p.m., our alarms are going off, and they're reminding us to pray Luke 10.2, as we read back in Luke 10.2, where he says the, the, the field's, they're, they're ready. It's ready for a harvest, but we need laborers to come and take it. And so we're praying, God, raise up laborers, more people to reach, more people for Jesus. And God, pray, I'm praying that I could be that person to, to reap and to, to, to see a harvest of people come to know Jesus. But it's going to take for us a broken heart, eyes that are wet, we're crying, we're, we're hurt. We're, we see the desperate, desperate place that people are in, and we're, we're hurting, we're brokenhearted for them like Jesus. I've told you this before. I'll just close with this one more time. When I was a, a kid, I had this, this teacher named Susie who loved Jesus and was just an amazing woman who just invested in my life and taught me scriptures from a young age. And, and, and she said, listen, Josh, the scariest, craziest prayer you'll ever pray that will really change your, your life and will change your sight is to pray that God would give you the eyes of Jesus for people. I would love to invite you to pray that prayer with me this morning. 
I'm telling you, when you start to see people the way Jesus sees people, from the youngest to the oldest, to the rich, to the poor, to the everybody in between, when you start to see people the way Jesus sees people, it breaks your heart, and you can't help but share. And so let's pray. Can we, can we go to God in prayer now and, and, and ask God, if you're so bold, I remember she's saying, don't, don't pray it if you don't want it. It's a big prayer, but would you close your eyes, and if, if you're ready, let, let's pray it together, Christians. Let's pray, God, would you give us the eyes of Jesus? Give us wet eyes. They're open eyes and we can see, but, but now wet them with tears for the people who need you. Pray that in your own words to him now. If you would be so bold. Lord, I pray you do that for me over and over and over again. Give me the eyes of Jesus for people. And we all pray that together, that you would give us your eyes for people. And God, I pray for those in this room who are blinded by some of these blinders, that you would remove the veil that they might see the beauty of the gospel or the good news and respond. So as we sing and respond, be glorified and do your work in our hearts and our midst. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.